All right, well, here we are. This is part five of our Gospel of John series. And if you don't know how this works, uh, essentially we're walking through the Gospel of John verse by verse by verse in a slow and methodical manner. And we're in this for the long haul. And our goal is to basically just attack this gospel from all angles and try to get the most we possibly can out of it. Uh, I'm hoping to answer the tough questions you might have over the text, but also draw out some application points that we can take out of the text to both apply to our lives and go out and share with the world. Uh, But overall, the main thing I am hoping we get out of this study is that we fall absolutely in love with Jesus Christ. Because I think that's the goal that the author of John had when he wrote the gospel. He wants us to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he wants us to place our faith in him so that we can find life in his name. And so that is my goal in this study. I want us to preach the truth, to defend the truth, and to stand for the truth in such a way that recognizes that that truth sets us free and that freedom is found in Christ. With that being said, I'm going to pray for us so that we can finally jump into the narrative of the Gospel of John. Dear Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be here again today. I pray for every single person listening that their ears will be open to hear what you have to say in your holy word. And I pray also for myself that my mouth will not say anything that you don't want me to say, but that I will only preach the truth and that I will preach it well in a way that is glorifying and magnifying to you so that I may decrease and you may increase. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the fact that you revealed yourself to us even though we don't deserve it and even though you didn't have to. And we thank you for the grace that you've given us and the grace upon grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ, your only beloved Son, who you sent to this earth to die for our sins. As we go into your word, let us not take it for granted, but let us draw near to you, recognizing that you alone are worthy of our focus and our attention and our time. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, for the last few weeks, we have actually just been introducing this entire gospel. In the first week, we just did an introduction to the gospel where we didn't even actually go into the text of Scripture. We were just talking about who wrote it, when was it written, why was it written, stuff like that. Uh, And then in the three weeks that followed, we were actually in the prologue of John, the first 18 verses wherein the author is introducing us to the gospel as a whole. He's laying the groundwork, introducing the major players, the major themes, and basically setting up the entire gospel. And today, we are going to start off in chapter 1, verse 19, where we actually get to jump into the narrative of Scripture. And this is what we read. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. 
They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. That's John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. If you remember in our study of the prologue of the Gospel of John, which I know it was pretty extensive, it lasted like three entire weeks, uh, but in those first 18 verses, the author John informed us that the person named John the Baptist came for one purpose, to testify about Jesus Christ. And so today in this lesson, we are going to actually get to begin to hear that testimony. And so this is what we read. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So if we're setting the scene, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and if you know anything about him from the other Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he was baptizing people on the Jordan River. And so what we see here is that some people from Jerusalem, the Jews, sent a group of people, the priests and Levites, to come to John and ask him about his identity. And so we have three major players here. We've already talked about John the Baptist in the past, but we have three major players that we need to identify. We have the Jews, the priests, and the Levites. Who are they? Firstly, let's talk about the Jews. Who are the Jews that John is talking about here? This is a term that John uses frequently throughout his gospel, and there's a lot of debate as to exactly who he's referencing, because obviously he is not talking about every single Jew in the world. He's not saying that all the Jews got together and sent these people. No, he's talking about a specific group of people, and so people are debating about how the author is using that term. One way that people think he might be talking about it is actually in a racial way, uh, where they think that he is actually using the term Jews in a very anti-Semitic way. This is signs of early Christian anti-Semitism, uh, which we will see very quickly cannot be the case, uh, and that actually doesn't make sense at all. So put that to the side, I'm just throwing it out there, because that is one interpretation that people have. We'll address it in a second. That's one people, way people view it. They view it as a racial connotation to what he's saying. Those are the Jews who are sending them. Secondly, we have the social interpretation, which would say that this is talking more specifically about the upper class, Jew, upper class Jewish leaders from Jerusalem who are sending the people over here to talk to John the Baptist. That seems pretty likely. The third way that John might use um, the term the Jews in his gospel could just be a geographical term. If you know anything about the Apostle John, he is from Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. And he could be talking about the Jews because they are from Judea, right? That's southern Israel, and that's where the term Jew comes from. It comes from Judea, right? So it could just be that John is a fisherman from Galilee, and so he's using the term Jews to reference the people from Judea. Right? So he could just be using it geographically. So there's the three interpretations. It could be racial, it could be social, it could be geographical. I would lean more towards the last two because it does seem like in the gospel there are occasions of both being used. In this instance, it seems to be the second one where he's talking about the Jewish leaders 
from Jerusalem who are sending these people. But let me address the first one very briefly so that we can just be clear in the fact that this is not an anti-Semitic phrase used to just attack the Jews, right? He's not just making all the Jews look terrible. And the reason why we know that is first and foremost because John himself was a Jew, right? The author of this gospel was a Jewish man, so it wouldn't make sense for him to be anti-Semitic. And then some people might say, okay, well, maybe he's not anti-Semitic. Maybe he's not against the Jews as a people group. Maybe he's against the Jews as a religious group, right? Because whenever you speak of a Jew, you could be talking about the Jewish people by blood, or you could be talking about the Jewish people by religion. So maybe John, being a Jewish Christian, is against the people who are Jewish by faith. And I would say that can't be the case either, because John would not have viewed Christianity as something entirely divorced from Judaism. John viewed Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism, because that's what Christianity is. So he wouldn't have been turned against his Jewish brethren. What he would have been is he'd be calling them to repentance, asking them to realize that Christianity is the real fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And so to me, it doesn't make sense to claim that John is being anti-Semitic here. That doesn't seem to fit the context of what John's going for. And so we can rule that one out. The last two, like I said, those seem most likely. John likely uses it in the last two understandings, more often referring to the Jewish leaders who are actively hostile against Christ. So he's not saying that all the Jews are bad. Whenever he uses the term the Jews, he is referencing the people who are specifically hostile against Christ, most likely referencing the group of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And if you want to know who the Sanhedrin are, basically it's this group of 71 rabbis or 71 teachers who were considered the Jewish high council, who basically were the judges of Israel. I need to fix my mic real quick. Boop. Okay, there we go. So he was probably referencing the Jewish leaders who were in the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Those are the Jews who are sending these people to come talk to John. Let's talk about the next group. We have the priests. Who are the priests? Well, to put it simply, a priest was someone set apart from the rest of the community for the specific role of carrying out duties revolving around the temple and worship practices, right? So these were the people who basically made the temple in Jerusalem run smoothly. And if you want to know how they decided who was a priest and whatnot, well, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. If you remember from the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. One tribe was the tribe of Levi. There were technically actually 13 tribes, but... Um, one tribe is the tribe of Levi, and they were set apart from all the rest specifically to work on temple practices. But not all of the Levites were priests. The only ones who were capable to be priests were those who were descended from Moses' brother Aaron. Right? So the priests were the people who made the temple run smoothly, and they were the ones who were descended specifically from the tribe of Levi, from Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. Which then turns us to the Levites. If you want to know who the priests and Levites are, the priests are the ones descent from Aaron. The Levites are the people who were also of the tribe of Levi who were not descended from Aaron. Okay, so these are the people, they couldn't actually function as priests, but they could do other things in the temple, right? They would usually be the temple police, or they could be the musicians that would help lead the worship in the temple. They just couldn't function as the priests who helped go about doing the sacrifices and doing stuff like that, right? So whenever we have the Jews sending the priests and the Levites, 
That's who these people are. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's of great importance probably that it's the priests and the Levites being sent to John the Baptist because from the Synoptic Gospels, we actually learn that John the Baptist came from a priestly family. This is actually how the Gospel of Luke starts out. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And basically, that whole story is setting up this miraculous appearance wherein the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and tells him they're going to have a kid, and this kid's going to be John the Baptist. But I tell you all this because we see that Zechariah was a priest, and his wife also came from a priestly family. So John the Baptist came from the Levites. He was from a priestly lineage. So it's interesting that the priests and the Levites are the ones being sent to him. So there we have the major players. We know who John the Baptist is. We know who the Jews are. We know who the priests are. We know who the Levites are. Now we have another question. Why do they care who John the Baptist is? Because that's what we just read. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Why on earth do these people in Jerusalem care who John the Baptist is? And for this, I think we have three possible reasons, all of which I think probably contributed to the greater overall reason. And the three reasons are this. First off, John the Baptist practice. Second off, his proclamations. And third off, his popularity. All right, so let's take, tackle those one by one. First off, his practice. I think this would have been the primary motivation for the priests and the Levites in coming to John. Because cleanliness and purification was a huge deal in Israel. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, you'll know this. Purification, cleanliness, washing with water, that was a big deal in Israel ever since the time of Moses. And so, given their role within the temple precincts, the priests and the Levites were the perfect people to be questioning John since they would have been particularly interested in rites of purification. And what was John doing? John was calling people into the Jordan River. He was baptizing them in water, and it was evidently some sort of purification practice. So the priests and the Levites, they're saying, hey, we're usually the ones in charge of doing that. So they want to know what exactly John is doing dunking people in water, right? If some guy's baptizing people in Jordan River, they will want to know why, and so they have that personal motivation to come check it out. His practices are weird, okay? But then second reason, his proclamations. This would have actually been probably the primary motivation for the Jews or the group of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, in sending the priests and the Levites there, right? So the priests and Levites, they're coming probably because they're interested in what John's doing. The Jews, they're interested because of the things that John is saying, right? So beyond that, being the highest court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin was personally responsible for investigating people who either claimed to be prophets or who people suspected of being prophets. John the Baptist shows up on the Jordan River. He is baptizing people in water, and it is very evident that he is claiming to be somebody important, or people think that he is somebody important. 
So it makes sense that the Jewish high council, the people in charge of the Jewish religion, trying to keep it on track, it would make sense that they'd investigate this person. They want to see who is he, who does he claim to be, what are the things he's saying, what's his deal. To not do so would actually have been highly irresponsible on their part, because the Old Testament establishes a very high level of authority and responsibility for the prophetic role. Because from a biblical perspective, a prophet is somebody who's proclaiming the word of God. And that's why in the Old Testament, you see that a punishment for false prophecy is death. Because under the Jewish governmental system, which was a theocracy, if you were going out and you were proclaiming that something was said by God and God did not say it, that was one of the worst things you could do. Because you were putting words in the mouth of the almighty, sovereign creator of the universe. And so, as the Jewish high council, it would actually be irresponsible for them to not check in to John the Baptist. It makes sense that they would want to know what he was about, especially whenever you see what the Gospels have to say about John's ministry. Hear this from Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So basically, John had some very fiery things to say. But then Luke goes on, he says this, and the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And so, John is gathering this huge crowd of people, and he's saying some very strong things. He's proclaiming some very loud and strict and very strong things. And some people are beginning to think that he is the Christ, and we're going to talk about that in a second, who the Christ is. But basically, what you need to know is that he is causing some major hubbub. He's causing a stir within the Jewish nation. And so it makes sense that these people would want to look in to John the Baptist. When John began to preach, he made sure that he was heard. He started causing a big commotion, so it makes sense the religious council would investigate him. And whenever you actually compare the Gospel of John to the other Gospels, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a rough chronology becomes apparent where you can actually kind of figure out that this group of people who's visiting John the Baptist in this Gospel is probably not the first group of people to visit him. Uh, This Messianic Jewish uh, commentator named Arnold Fruchtenbaum has to say this. When such a movement was detected, the Sanhedrin conducted its investigation in two stages. The first being the stage of observation. A delegation was sent out to do nothing but observe what was being said, taught, and done. At this point, the representatives of the Sanhedrin could not ask questions or raise objections. They could not verbalize anything. All they were allowed to do was observe. After a period of observation, they were to return to Jerusalem to give a report and issue a verdict. The verdict was to be that the movement was either significant or insignificant. If they declared the movement insignificant, the whole matter would be dropped. However, if they said the movement was significant, the second stage, the stage of interrogation, 
was put into motion. A second delegation was sent out, but this time they would ask questions, raise objections, and look for a basis to either accept or reject the person's messianic claims. Right? So basically what Fruchtenbaum is saying here is he's saying that whenever the Sanhedrin heard about somebody causing a stir or maybe proclaiming to be the Messiah or maybe people were thinking that this guy was the Messiah or the Christ, they would send a group of people to investigate this person. The first time, they would just go observe this person. And then after they'd observed him for a little bit, they wouldn't cause any trouble. They would just observe. They would go back. They would talk to the Sanhedrin, and they would say, is this guy a problem or not a problem? And if the person wasn't a problem, they would drop it. If the person could be a problem, they'd send them back. And this time, they would send them back with questions. And they would ask them, who are you? What are you doing? What's your goal here? What are you trying to accomplish here? And basically, that was the Sanhedrin's way of trying to maintain the peace. And whenever you look at the synoptic gospels, it would seem like those occurrences are the first time the people are coming to look at John. They're observing, and then John turns to them, and he says, you brood of vipers. And he's like calling them out on some major stuff. So they go back to the Sanhedrin, and they're like, okay, guys, so here's the deal. He might be a problem because he's causing some issues. He's actually calling us out on our stuff. And he seems to be really critiquing the establishment. So now, in the Gospel of John, we have the second party being sent right here, and this is the interrogation party. They've evidently deemed John someone significant to investigate further, so they dispatch a group of Levites and priests to look into him more. And so that would be the second reason why they are interested in John. The first reason is his practice. His baptism would intrigue the Levites and the priests. And then the second reason would be his proclamations. The things he's saying are pretty controversial, so they need to look into him because that's their rightful duty as the Jewish high council. But then the third reason would be his popularity. Uh, and this is because we can look at how the Sanhedrin and how the Jewish people respond to Jesus, and that might give us a reason to understand why they're looking into John. And that might be because of their jealousy. You see, whenever Jesus begins growing in popularity, sometimes the Jews will send people to interrogate him, not because they want to know where he stands, but because they're actively hostile against him, and they're jealous of the fact that he is stealing the limelight from them. Right? So the Sanhedrin was largely populated by Sadducees, which would be the upper ruling class of the Jews. There would have also been Pharisees in there as well. Um, but it was largely um, governed by the priestly class. Right? The people who were supposed to be in charge of the temple. The ones who make things run smoothly. And so they enjoyed maintaining their control and didn't like anybody threatening that control. So some random preacher with a loud voice coming to the Jordan River and calling people to be dunked in water, they're not going to like, especially if he is stealing their attention from them. Right? So it could have been also jealousy of his popularity that motivated them to come check him out. With John attracting so many people, whilst also voicing his strongly worded critiques of the Jewish religious system, their pride definitely would have been a factor that motivated them to look into him. And given the pride that might have motivated their interrogation, it makes John's responses all the more stark and surprising in comparison. Because they come to him, right? And it could be their pride that's motivating them to come check this out. And they come to him and they say, who are you? And this is what he responds. 
He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What we'll see as we study John the Baptist is that he is one of the most humble people to have ever existed. And for us, he is going to be an example of pure humility that we need to strive for. Because this guy is so, so, so humble. Notice how John presents John the Baptist's response. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Three times there, right? The only question that has been asked of him so far is, who are you? He could have just said John the Baptist, right? They just said, who are you? But John the Baptist knew what they were really getting at. And so he just jumps to the point and he says, I'm not the Christ. If you think I'm somebody that important, you're wrong. I'm not the Christ. I'm John the Baptist. Right? So he, he gets their point. They're saying, who are you? He jumps to where they're actually going for, and he wants to make it absolutely clear who he is not. They asked him who he is. He tells them who he is not. And the threefold declaration which the Apostle John presents John the Baptist's response shows how adamant he is in denying the claim. Right? He confessed, but did not deny, but confessed. Right? He was like, no, 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 no. I'm not the Christ. 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 If you don't get the point, John the Baptist is declaring he's not the Christ. He wanted these people to know with absolute certainty that he in no way claimed to be the Christ. But that raises a question for us. Who is the Christ? What does it mean to be the Christ? What do they mean by that phrase? Because we hear it, and the majority of us probably hear it, and we think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Right? I thought it was Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Jesus Christ. What? No, Christ was actually a title. Right? And John right here is saying, I am not the Christ. So let's actually delve into that. What is meant by the term Christ? To put it simply, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. So whenever you hear Messiah and you hear Christ, recognize those mean the exact same thing. It means the anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, God promised the arrival of an anointed servant who would come to deliver the people of Israel from bondage and reign over the people of God. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, throughout the entire Old Testament, you have the promise of this anointed figure, this servant of God, who would come and he would deliver the people of Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. And he would reign over them for all eternity. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And the Jews didn't have a single view of the Messianic hope, but the overall picture of the Messiah was that of a conquering king from the line of David who would arrive to cast away foreign oppressors and usher in the kingdom of God. At the time of Jesus Christ, at the time of the New Testament, that was the prevalent idea of the Messiah. It was this conquering king who would come in with forces and armies and all these things to wipe away foreign oppressors and establish the kingdom of God here on earth. But like I said, there was actually some debate as to how that would occur, what the Messiah or what the Christ would be like. Actually, in later Judaism, um, there would be this expansion of the idea of the Messiah to where people began to start believing in the possibility of two messiahs, right? There would be one who was called the Messiah bin Joseph, and there was the Messiah bin David. Messiah bin Joseph is this Messiah, this Christ figure, who is called the Messiah son of Joseph. That's what bin means. It means son of. Messiah son of Joseph, because he would be like a suffering servant. 
Very akin to Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? He's the righteous man who just keeps serving God, yet keeps getting dealt a bad hand, yet he suffers for the sake of people so that even what the enemy means for evil, God can use for good, right? So that'd be one idea of the Messiah. And the other idea of the Messiah would be Messiah ben David, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David. He was the conquering king who would come in and usher in the kingdom of God. So later Judaism, after the time of Christ, later on they would develop this idea that there's these two messiahs because whenever you look in the Old Testament, you have both portraits. You have this messiah, you have this anointed figure who is a conquering king, but you also have this anointed figure who's a suffering servant. And they had a tough time rationalizing those two and putting them together, and so they ended up with two messiahs. Messiah ben David, Messiah ben Joseph. For us, we would say that they are one and the same. Whenever Jesus came the first time, he was a suffering servant. And when he's coming yet in the future, he will be the conquering king. But we're not there yet. Right now, we're just with John the Baptist, right? So let's get back to this idea of the Christ. In the time of the New Testament, before they developed that two-Messiah idea, in the time of the New Testament, by and large, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that he would do these seven things. Firstly, he would be preceded by a time of great tribulation and affliction. Secondly, he would be heralded by Elijah as his forerunner. Thirdly, he would appear as a triumphant king empowered to usher in the kingdom of God. Fourthly, he would overcome hostile powers and wage judgment on them. Five, he would restore Jerusalem. Six, he would gather the dispersed people of Israel and bring them back to Jerusalem. And seventh, he would rule over the kingdom of God for the glory of God. So those are, in general, the seven messianic expectations. Some people wouldn't hold to all seven of them. Some of them would add some more. There was a lot of debate over who the Messiah would be, but by and large, that was the expectation of the Messiah. He was this conquering king who would come in and save the people of God. Most people viewed the Messiah as both a political and a religious figure, but in the Judaism of New Testament times, the emphasis was on the political aspect. You see, whenever we refer to the anointed one, there were three offices that were anointed according to Jewish rites. There were the priests, there were the prophets, and there were the kings. In order to enter into these offices, they would be anointed by oil, right? But the Jews, they didn't focus so much on the prophet or priest aspect. They mainly focused on the king. They didn't focus on the religious aspect. They focused on the political. They wanted the king to come in and usher in the kingdom of God. First century Palestine especially saw a spike in messianic expectations, especially due to the increased scrutiny and oppression being waged by the Romans. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, we have the Jews going into exile and then coming back. And then you have this promise, you know, from the Old Testament, from the law, that if you serve God faithfully, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be disciplined and you'll be cursed. Right? And God is very gracious with all this. They will disobey for a long time, and he'll warn them, and then eventually he'll send them into exile. But he sends them into exile, and they come back. And in between the Old Testament and New Testament, you have the Jews going in and out of oppression. Right? In and out of oppression, so that by the time the New Testament starts, they are under the Romans. And the Romans are increasingly clenching their fists tighter and tighter on the Jews. And so the Messianic hope is growing more and more, because they want some Messiah to show up, and free them from the Romans. 
The Jews expected the Messiah to show up at any moment to wage war on the Romans and usher in the kingdom of God. And there's even this one rabbi, Rabbi Yohanan, which basically is just Rabbi John. That's Yohanan is the Hebrew word for John. Rabbi John even declared that if they could just keep the Sabbath for two weeks in a row, the Messiah would come. And that's why when we encounter Jesus, you know, they're all about keeping the Sabbath. They're like, man, why do you have to keep doing stuff on the Sabbath? If we could just keep the Sabbath for a few weeks, the Messiah will show up. And the irony is that Jesus is like, I'm already here. But that's what they believed. They believed if they could just be obedient to the law, the Messiah would come and he would deliver them from the Romans. And that's why the historian Josephus actually talks about a number of people around the time of Christ who either claimed to be Messiahs or led failed revolts against the Romans, kind of like people expect the Messiah to do, except they didn't expect the Messiah to fail, obviously. But Josephus actually lists out some failed Messiahs. Right? One person was a guy named Simon of Perea. He led a revolt, ultimately killed by decapitation. Another guy was a guy named Athronges. He led a revolt with his four brothers, and his four brothers ultimately were killed. We don't know how Athronges died. We don't know what happened to him. But his four brothers were killed, so he probably was killed as well. Then we also have a guy named Thutis. Led a revolt, also killed by decapitation. And Josephus mentions that there were a bunch of other revolts. He doesn't go into detail about every single one of them. But he says a lot of revolts happened. In the second century, even after the time of Jesus, we actually have a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba who would lead a failed revolt, and some people would even hail him as the Messiah, right? So this guy was actually hailed as the Messiah who led a revolt, and it was pretty successful for a, wh- for a while, but ultimately he was killed during a siege. And so around the time of Jesus, in the first and second centuries, especially under the Romans, You had a lot of people coming up, and they were claiming to be the Messiah, but each and one of them was killed. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, If there were all these people who claimed to be the Messiah, what makes our Messiah any different from them? Uh, And the thing that we will see that makes our Messiah distinct is that where all those other Messiahs were killed and stayed dead, our Messiah was killed and he came back to life. Right? So that's what we're going to see with Jesus. But for right now, once again, we're talking about John the Baptist. And despite all these people who were so quick to pronounce themselves the Messiah, and they were so quick to take up that name, they were like, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the person who has arrived to deliver the people from the Romans. Despite all that, we read this about John the Baptist. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ I am not the Messiah. He says, I do not want you to think that that's who I am because that's not who I am. I'm not the Christ. At this time, there were so many people who were just wanting to claim that name because they wanted to be the promised deliverer. But John says, no, I'm not the Christ. And so we read that they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no, Right? So John says he's not the Messiah, but the interrogation party recognizes that he has to be something special because everybody seemed to recognize that John the Baptist was something special. Nobody could hear John and say, you're just a regular guy. There's something special about you. So if you're not the Christ, who are you? And they ask him, are you Elijah? And if you know anything about the Old Testament or Jewish history, This is probably a very confusing question because you're thinking, wait a second, 
Wasn't Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament? From like 900 years ago? How could John the Baptist be Elijah? And to answer that, let's talk about that. Listen to this. If you flip to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, you'll read this. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God promises through Malachi that there is this messenger who will come ahead of the Lord, and this messenger will be the one to herald in the Messiah. And the Messiah will show up, and he will arrive in the temple. And so we have this promise of this coming messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And shortly afterwards, Malachi says this in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. This is what we read Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the fathers of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the final words of the Old Testament. After the prophet Malachi penned those words, God went silent. And for 400 years, for nearly 400 years, no prophet came forth speaking the word of God. And so for those 400 years, these are the words that the Jewish people clung to. This promise that this messenger would precede the Messiah, that this Elijah would come ahead of the Messiah to usher in the way to call people to repentance and to remind them to follow the straight path to go and pursue God. And if you remember the story of Elijah from the Old Testament, this is how it ends according to 2 Kings chapter 2. When they had crossed the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you. Before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. So right here we have this account where Elijah is walking with his disciple, Elisha, or Elisha, right? They're walking together, and Elijah is suddenly taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and he's never seen again. Elijah never died. And the last time he was seen was on the banks of the Jordan River. And then, if you go a chapter earlier, we read this about Elijah. So we read in, in 2 Kings chapter 1, The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, 
What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So right here in this account, we see two things about Elijah. We see what he did and the clothes he wore. What he did is he called people to repentance, and if they wouldn't repent, he cast judgment. On the other end, what he wore... He wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now let's ask what John the Baptist did. He called out people to repentance. We've already seen that. And then we read this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Right? So think about this. Elijah was taken up to heaven without dying. The last time he was seen was on the banks of the Jordan River. He was known for calling people to repentance, and he wore garments here and a leather belt. John the Baptist all of a sudden shows up on the banks of the Jordan River, calling people to repentance, wearing camel's hair, a leather belt. And the last thing we had in the Old Testament was the promise that this prophet Elijah would come The Jews were waiting for the prophet Elijah to come because that's how they knew that God was doing something new. Because it says the messenger will come to proceed the way for the Messiah and the Messiah will bring a new covenant with him. So they were waiting for Elijah to come. And so it makes sense. They're like, okay, you're not the Christ. Are you Elijah? This makes sense. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. Which is very confusing. Because it seems like elsewhere, Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Check this out from Matthew chapter 11. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent taken it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here in John, we have John the Baptist saying, no, I'm not Elijah. But over there in Matthew, we have Jesus saying, yes, John the Baptist is Elijah. So what's the deal? Is Jesus lying or is John lying? Well, we know that Jesus isn't lying because he's the son of God, so he can't lie But is John the Baptist lying here? And I'd say no, he's not lying. John the Baptist isn't lying because while Jesus identifies John as Elijah who is to come, the Bible never asserts that John the Baptist made that connection himself. The picture we get of John the Baptist is a humble person who is more inclined to view himself as not as important as he seemed. Right? Jesus is the Christ, and John's like, I'm not the Christ. He's always lowering himself down. What we're going to see is that he just thinks he is but a voice in the wilderness. Right? So John, he's a humble man. And so while Jesus made that connection, John might not have made that connection. But even if he did, he wouldn't be lying because John is not Elijah. He is John. 
right? Many people still believe that John came in the spirit of Elijah, but the actual Elijah is yet to come. Remember the transfiguration account that we've talked about in past weeks? Well, Elijah showed up and talked with Jesus. It was Elijah and Moses, they talked with Jesus. So some people would believe that the true Elijah is yet to come. John came in the spirit of Elijah, right? So that's why they have all the similarities, and that's why, in a way, he was the Elijah to come, yet there is the actual Elijah to come yet in the future. And that's why, even to this day, most Jews will leave a seat and a cup for Elijah when they celebrate the Passover. And they will actually open the door and check the hallway in the event that Elijah has shown up to celebrate the Passover with them. I was so fascinated to learn that whenever I was in Israel and I got to share a meal with a Jewish family because that's what they did. They left a cup and they left a seat for Elijah. And they go open the door and they look outside just in case he shows up to eat with them. It's actually a very beautiful thing that I think about. But Jesus says that John is Elijah. John says he's not Elijah. It could be that John didn't make that connection, but it could be that John is just knowingly telling them the truth in a way that they don't mean. Right? Because he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm John. (laughs) Because he's not Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Right? So there is a distinction to be made there. But still, these people are not satisfied. They said, he said he's not the Christ. He said he's not Elijah. So they asked him again, how about this? Are you the prophet? But what do they mean by the prophet? I mean, obviously, he seems to be a prophet. He's proclaiming the word of God. But what do they mean by the prophet? And this actually goes back to one of the last promises that Moses gave the people of Israel back whenever he was about to die in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses goes back to whenever they first arrived at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and God had called them all up to the mountain, but then they said, whoa, no, 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 no. They trembled in fear of God, and they trembled at his mighty presence, and they said, Moses, we're not going up there. You go up there, and you be the mediator between God and man. You go and be that prophet. You speak the word of God to us, and we will stay here. And in a way, they almost rejected God there. That's where we see their position to God, because we should tremble before God and draw near to Him, recognizing that it is better to be covered by Him than to be far away. But instead, they said, no, Moses, we're not going near. You go near. And so right here in Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises that there is going to be another prophet to come, a prophet who will be greater than him, a prophet who, like him, will be a mediator between God and man, who will speak the word of God and who they should all listen to. That is who Moses promises. And some people rightly, such as the Samaritans, they associated this prophet with the Messiah. But some people viewed him as a distinct figure. So they said, are you the Christ? He says, no. They say, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. 
And so they say, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet like Moses who will serve as the mediator between God and man who will speak the word of God just as Moses did back in the wilderness? Because here you are in the wilderness on the bank of the Jordan. Are you the prophet? And John says, no, I'm not the prophet. And so we read in verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? The interrogation party is obviously flabbergasted. They have been sent to gather information, yet so far they have received no useful information whatsoever. Here they are at the banks of the Jordan River, yet they are coming up dry. (laughs) They can look around and see all the people flocking towards John the Baptist, yet thus far he has denied being anything special whatsoever. They are coming to him, and they're like, you're obviously something important. And they think that he must be this eschatological figure. Eschatological means end times, right? They think you're some sort of end times figure. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Because you obviously seem to be something of a big deal. Yet they can't seem to get any answers out of him except no, no, no. So if John denies being any of these big figures, the least they can do is ask him who he does identify himself as. Because so far, he said, he's not this, he's not this, he's not this. So they say to him, okay, then who are you? Because we can't go back to our authorities and tell them that we've got nothing. They sent us here for answers. We need answers. Who do you claim to be? And this is what we read as John's response in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I do not know what the people were expecting John the Baptist to say, but it probably was not this. Because you see what John is doing. He is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 40, and this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 40. We read, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is God speaking to the people of Israel who have been in exile. And God is saying, your time of exile has come to an end. Be comforted, my people. You are about to return. And so if we keep reading, we read this. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you haven't noticed, understanding the Old Testament is crucial to understanding the New Testament. It has been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. If you haven't noticed so far, in order to best understand the implications of the New Testament, you have to have a fundamental understanding of the Old Testament. When you look at our Bible, the Old Testament takes up like three quarters of it, and the New Testament is like a quarter of it. You have to understand the Old if you're wanting to fully understand the New, and you have to understand the New if you're wanting to fully understand the Old. You need the whole thing. Because right here, we have God making a major promise. 
to the people of Israel. In the original context, the voice crying in the wilderness is demanding that the roads be smoothed out to prepare the way for the exiled people of God to return to the promised land. And in the same way, John the Baptist is saying that he is the one paving the way for the Messiah, the king who has come to redeem his people and bring them back to the promised home, to the place where they belong. John is saying that he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, but he is preparing the road in a way that no one could have imagined. Because what they interpreted that verse as speaking of was a physical return to Israel, which will one day come. But right here, he says, I am preparing people's hearts. I am the voice crying out to people to prepare the way, to get rid of their sin, because the Messiah has come and he is coming to bring them back to their promised land. He is going to redeem people and restore them into a proper relationship with God. So John denies being a major eschatological figure. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. But at the same time, he is abundantly aware of the fact that he is not just a regular preacher. He's not just some random guy on the edge of the Jordan. John says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. But yes, You have heard about me in the Old Testament, and you want to know where you heard about me? I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Leon Morris has to say this about John's response. The point of the quotation is that it gives no prominence to the preacher whatever. He is not an important person like a prophet or the Messiah. He is no more than a voice, which you can contrast to Jesus being the Word of God. He is a voice, moreover, with but one thing to say. Make straight the way of the Lord is a call to be ready for the coming of the Messiah is near. So you see John, he says, if you want to know who I am, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I am nothing but a voice crying out in the wilderness. In a desolate area where barely anybody can hear, I am the voice calling for somebody to hear that they may prepare the way for the arrival of God. That is who John claims to be. And so we move on, verse 24. Here we read, now they have been sent from the Pharisees. And I want to be clear here, there is some debate on how to interpret that phrase, but ultimately I don't think it changes the context of how we understand the passage. For our sake, I will give you the three main interpretations of how people would translate this phrase, just so you know. The first way is how we read it right here in the English Standard Version. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, in which case the Pharisees were the ones who sent this group of people to go inquire of John. This would be a bit odd, mainly because the priests and the Levites would usually belong to the group of people called the Sadducees. So it would be kind of weird if they were sent by the Pharisees. But that is a fair translation, and that's what we have here in the ESV. Um, Other translations, such as the NIV, the New International Version, they will translate it like this. Now the Pharisees who had been sent, right, in which case these people were among, like, in which case there were some amongst them who were Pharisees, right? So amongst the priests and Levites, there was also another group of people 
who were also Pharisees, standing with them in the crowd. This translation, to me, seems to make the most sense. It seems to be implying that, okay, there's the priests, the Levites, but there's also a greater crowd there. And so those amongst them who were Pharisees are about to ask a question. But there's also a third translation, which would say that now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, right? In which case, all the priests and the Levites present were Pharisees. This also could be the case, but it's less likely because, once again, the priests and the Levites were typically, they usually belonged to the Sadducees. So whether or not the priests and Levites were actually Pharisees, which would be weird, or whether they were sent by the Pharisees, which would be weird because the Sanhedrin is typically mostly Sadducees, um, it really doesn't make a difference. All you need to know is that someone in the group is either a Pharisee or they have been sent by Pharisees to ask the following questions. Which brings us to another question. Who are the Pharisees? Well, what you need to know is that there were three main Jewish sects at the time of Jesus. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. In some ways, these different sects of Judaism were kind of like denominations, kind of like how we have the Baptists and we have Pentecostals and we have different groups like that. Um, in some ways, they were like that. They were like denominations, just like we engage in in Christianity. But in other ways, these sects were kind of like political parties, kind of like how we have Republicans and Democrats, conservatives, liberals. Um, with Judaism, since once again it was a theocracy, denominations and political parties were essentially the same thing because what you believed determined how you governed yourself politically, right? That would make sense. They, like they were very intertwined. And so they were kind of like denominations, they were kind of like political parties, and there were three main ones. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And just for the sake of giving you the greater context of Scripture, I want to address those very briefly. First off, the Sadducees, they were the people that we could call the compromisers. And what I mean is this. They were largely from the ruling and priestly class, and they were mainly the aristocrats of first century Palestine. So the Sadducees, they were usually the wealthier people, right? They were from the priestly class. They were the ones in charge of the temple. So they weren't as strict about following the law, and they were more, and the more pious Jews didn't care for them so much because of their tendency to collaborate with the Romans. And the reason why they were more likely to collaborate with the Romans is because they realized that that allowed them to exercise more power. They were the ones in charge of the temple, and so if they were too strict with the law, the Romans would kick them out of the temple. But if they complied with the Romans a little bit, they could maintain their power, they could keep making money because they would partner up with the Romans and increase the taxes, and so the Sadducees ended up being the ruling party amongst all of them. That's why most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, most of the priests were Sadducees, those were the ruling aristocrats who weren't as strict about the law. Um, they did hold to the law, they didn't totally abandon it, but they weren't as strict as the Pharisees, as we're going to see. Right, Daryl Bach actually summarizes the Sadducean perspective like this. These are the cards you've been dealt. We've got to make the best of the situation and do the best we can to get along with the nations. And if that includes some cultural compromise, no problem. That's kind of the perspective that we get of the Sadducees. But let's move on to the Essenes. These people, if the Sadducees were the compromisers, the Essenes were on the total opposite end and they were the separatists. Right? So the Essenes, we don't know a lot about them from the Bible, but they were basically the monks of first century Palestine. 
Right? So out of their desire to hold fast to the law and to stick away from worldliness, they retreated into the desert area of Judea. Um, you'll hear of people like the people of Qumran, the Qumran community where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were likely Essenes. They were most likely Essenes. Um, so some people actually think that John the Baptist was an Essene, but we don't have much reason to think that other than the fact that he lived out in the wilderness and he had a zeal for God. Right? But the Essenes, they were the monks who basically they did not want to conform to worldliness and they didn't want to at all compromise with the Romans. So basically they just retreated into the desert and formed a monastic lifestyle where they could just focus on God. And they did a lot of writing and that's where we end up with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Daryl Bach summarizes their perspective like this. We're going to be so distinct that we're going to move out to the desert and live in our own world. So that's the Essenes, right? So we have the Sadducees on one end, and they're the compromisers, and then we have the Essenes on the other end, and they're the separatists. There is another group I want to mention very briefly. They're not going to come into a lot of play here, Um, but this is the group called the Herodians, and we can just call them the cooperators because they didn't want to cause a huge fuss, and they just cooperated with the Romans. So really, these are the people who might have been Jews. They might have been Gentiles. The whole point is that really they were living in Israel, but they more just sided with Romans and just didn't cause a big stink at all. Um, So there's the Herodians. They're not a huge factor, but you need to know about them, right? So we got the main thing. We got the Sadducees. They're the cooperators. And we have the Essenes, who are the separatists. And then right in the middle, we have a group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees could be called the separatists in a different way wherein they didn't just exclude themselves in the same way that the monk-like Essenes did, but they also didn't cooperate in the same way that the Sadducees did. You see, they didn't retreat into the desert, but they didn't budge in their distinction and their desire to keep the law. Rather, they had the the in-the-world-not-of-it mentality who sought to keep the law as best they could. And in fact, they were so pious about the law that they developed an entire oral tradition that actually added further constraints to the law even beyond what God commanded. And that was the issue with the Pharisees. Because you see, they actually had a good mentality. They said, we are going to live in the world, but we're not going to be of the world. We're going to be in the world like the Sadducees, but we're not going to take ourselves out of the world like the Essenes. So we're in the world, but we're not of it. Just like the Essenes aren't of it, we're going to do that. But the Sadducees, they're a little too much acting in the world, right? They're they're too much of the world. Right? So the Pharisees have the right mentality. They say, we are going to live in the culture that we are given, the culture we're surrounded by, by God, but we're going to make it clear that we are distinct and we are a holy people and we are striving to live before God in such a way that he will send the Messiah to redeem us and save us. And so out of their piety and out of their righteousness, they actually developed this whole oral tradition where they built on the law of God. And we're going to see things like this um, popping up in like chapter 5, whenever Jesus heals this lame man, and the man is carrying his mat, and some people are going to come up to him and say, hey, it's against the law for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. Well, that's not against the law. Uh, That's against their oral tradition that they added to the law. And so the issue with the Pharisees was not that their piety was too strong. It was that they added on to the law and started holding other people to it. They turned into what we would call legalists. 
right? It's kind of like somebody nowadays who chooses not to drink, right? For instance, me. I personally do not drink. I know that the Bible gives you the freedom to drink alcohol. The Bible prohibits you from getting drunk. I personally choose not to drink. Uh, That's my own personal desire, and that is fine for myself. But if I turn to my brother or sister in Christ and condemn them for drinking, I have become a legalist. Because now I am forcing somebody else to do something which I, by my own conviction, felt necessary to do. I am forcing something upon them that God did not force upon them. It would be different if I told my brother or sister not to get drunk because God explicitly commands that in Scripture. He says, do not get drunk. Have no part in drunkenness. Be of sober mind. Right? So if somebody's getting drunk, I can call them out on that and say, hey, brother, that's not what God wants you to do. But if I tell them that they can't drink, now I'm forcing my own law on them. And that's what the Pharisees did. They turned into legalists. They fought to be distinct from those around them without withdrawing away, and so they were extremely pious about following the law, and in a way, of all the groups, they were the most correct. Because they didn't budge like the Sadducees, they didn't retreat like the Essenes, they didn't totally just give up like the Herodians, they actually were striving to serve God, and that's why they were the closest to getting it right, and that is why Jesus, when he shows up, is going to be the most critical of them. Because whenever somebody is totally off, you don't have to correct them so much because everybody knows that they've got it wrong. When Jesus shows up, the reason he gets onto the Pharisees so often is because they're so close. And so there's a lot of nuance there, and he has to get onto them, and he says, here's where you're missing out. You're doing right in your desire to obey God's commands, but you're missing out on the heart of God. Right? And so I'm saying all this because you need to know who the Pharisees are to understand why they're asking John what they're about to ask him. The Pharisees are the people who strive to obey God and strive to live in this world without retreating and without budging. They have a good desire, they just don't always apply it the right way. And this is what they ask him. They turn to John the Baptist and they say, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? They say, if you're just some voice crying out in the wilderness, then what gives you the authority to be baptizing? And this is a very good question to ask. A lot of the times we'll look at the things that the Jews are asking Jesus or John the Baptist, and we'll immediately critique them for their question, but this is actually a very good question to be asking, because they are asking on what authority John is doing his practice. And that is something that we as Christians should become more comfortable in doing. Because you see, nowadays in the Christian church, there are many pastors who go about some strange and even unbiblical practices, and we need to learn to be bold enough to do what the Jews are doing here and say, where are you getting your authority to do these practices? The priests and the Levites and the Pharisees have been sent here to ask John about who he is, And if he says that he is not this authoritative figure, he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, he's just a voice, then they say, then where are you getting your authority to do this thing? Because you're doing something new, 
And we need to know if God sanctions it. And that's something that we as Christians need to do whenever we see somebody doing something that is not aligned with the Bible. Because the Bible is our authority. The Bible commands us this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 21. It says that we are to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. And elsewhere, it commands us to test the Scriptures. We need to recognize that even as Christians, in all things, Scripture is authoritative, and we must always strive to submit to its authority regardless of our own opinions, regardless of if we like what the person's doing, regardless, if it, it, regardless of if it appeals to us. We need to be able to look at people, and if they're doing something that doesn't seem to match up with Scripture, or even if it seems to match up with Scripture, but it just seems strange or sticks out, we need to say, where are you getting this? Because it seems a bit odd, and I want to know where your heart's at here. What are you going at with this practice? And a lot of the times as Christians, we don't want to do that. And a lot of the times, whenever people do ask this, the people will respond, the pastors and the leaders who do these practices, they'll respond and say, who are you to question my authority? And that is scary. Because one of the first and surest signs of a cult is whenever a leader has such power that he will not allow his authority to be questioned. The beautiful thing about Christianity is that we believe we are on the side of truth. And so those who believe they are on the side of truth do not have to fear being questioned because they believe that truth can handle hard questions. And so if you are a Christian, you should have no trouble being questioned or having your authority questioned. Because as a Christian, you should always be able to say, this is where I'm getting it. And you should be able to open up the scriptures and say, right here. And that should be where you get your authority. And I say all that because I want us to recognize that this is not a bad question. The Jews right here are doing their job. They're coming up to John and they're saying, if you're not this eschatological figure, then who are you and why are you doing the things that you're doing? And that raises another question. Why did John need authority to be doing what he was doing? What was it about it, what he was doing that made baptism so significant? And contrary to what you might believe, some of you might actually be surprised to hear this, John the Baptist did not invent baptism. The reason why he was known as John the Baptist is because his baptism was set apart from the baptisms that had existed prior to that. He didn't, he didn't create baptism, he renovated it, I guess you could say. You see, prior to John the Baptist, Baptism was a common practice. As I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the Levites and the priests, cleanliness and purification was a major practice according to Jewish law. So Jewish people were constantly having to cleanse themselves, and that purification was often symbolically associated with the remission of sins. When we get to John chapter 2, we're going to hear about purification jars. Because purification and cleanliness was a very important aspect of living the Jewish lifestyle. So it wasn't that being cleaned was different. And in addition to this, when people converted to Judaism, oftentimes they would undergo what was known as a proselyte baptism. They would be baptized into the Jewish faith. 
So say a Gentile, right? Say a Midianite, somebody like that, somebody outside of the line of Abraham, if they were converting to Judaism and placing their faith in the Jewish God, they would be baptized into the Jewish faith. And that was known as a proselyte baptism. So once again, baptism, not different. The Essenes, the people we talked about earlier, the monastic people, they daily made a practice of ritual cleansing, baptizing themselves on a daily basis. Every day they found it necessary to baptize themselves as symbolically representing the remission of sins and their call to be pure and clean before God. So what John was doing wasn't creating a new practice. What John was doing was renovating the practice because here's the distinction. In all those other baptisms, the people were baptizing themselves. In the proselyte baptism, the person would go and they would dunk themselves in water. In the purification rites of the Jews, they would wash themselves. With the Essenes, they would go and they would dip themselves into what was known as the mikvah, where they would clean themselves. And they would be baptizing themselves. The word baptizo, it just means to immerse. They would immerse themselves in water. And that's what they would do. But John... He's on the banks of the Jordan River, and he is calling people to wade into the water, and he would be the one immersing them into the water. So no longer were these people immersing themselves. Now they needed somebody else to call them forward, and he would lower them in and bring them back out. And that's why the Jews are coming up here, and they're saying, what are you doing when you're doing this? Where are you coming up with this practice? The synoptics see John further clarifying the purpose of his baptism. In Mark chapter 1, we read this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and all were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John is standing on the banks of the Jordan and he is calling out to the Jewish people and he is calling them into the water to wade into the water for the remission of sins. And we read about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about Josephus. Josephus talked about John the Baptist and he said that whenever he did this, he wasn't expecting that the actual water cleansed them of sin. He was expecting that they had been cleansed of their sin and that being baptized into the water symbolically represented what had already happened in their hearts. Therefore, you can understand the curiosity of the Pharisees. Because these are the people who they cling to the law and they stick to the law. And they don't want to do anything that departs from the law. Yet John is not simply baptizing converts to Judaism. He's baptizing Jews themselves. He's not simply calling Gentiles to repentance. He's calling Jews to repentance, the very people of God. Why, from the Pharisees' perspective, would the Jews need to be baptized? From the Pharisees' perspective, why would law-abiding Jews need to be baptized if following the law made you right before God? That's where they're confused because they're saying these people follow the law, yet you're baptizing them and saying they need to repent of their sins. Where are you getting your authority? John the Baptist is calling Jews into the water and he is treating them like Gentiles. He is treating them as if both Jew and Gentile are equally estranged from God because of their sin. 
And so the Pharisees are very confused by this. Because from their perspective, if you're following the law, you're good. So why would you need to be baptized? That's where their confusion lies. As a prophet of old, John the Baptist is calling forth a holy remnant and pointing out that the issue of sin is still prevailing even amongst the Jewish people. The reason the Pharisees are curious and the reason they need to know where John gets his authority is because for the first time in 400 years, a prophet has raised his voice. If John was not the Christ, if John was not Elijah, if John was not the prophet, then he had some explaining to do because the practice that he was going about was certainly not kosher. Pun definitely intended. If their question is a question of authority, and if they want to know why he can do the things that he's doing, then John answers their question well when we get to verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John has just declared himself the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. But now he says that there is somebody standing amongst them, possibly even in the crowd as he speaks, who is greater than him and from whom he gets his authority. The implication is that the Messiah himself, the king they've been waiting for for thousands of years, is in their midst. He has arrived and they don't even know him. For all we know, Jesus is standing in the crowd as these people are questioning John. And so they say, are you the Christ? He says, no. Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you the prophet? He says, no. And they say, who are you? I'm a voice. And they say, if you're just a voice, then what gives you the right to do these things? And he says, I am but baptizing you with water. There is one who stands amongst you, a person who you don't even know, yet he is in your midst. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That is a declaration of John. And I don't know about you, but I can imagine chills running down their spines as they hear his words because he has just declared that the person that they have longed for the person they've been waiting for for thousands of years, the person that they are extra hungry for even right now, the Messiah, he has arrived. John says, I'm not the Messiah, but the Messiah is here. And that's why we read that this is the testimony of John, because he has testified that the Messiah has arrived. Another way you could look at this, at what John is saying, is like this. John is saying, oh, you're surprised at what I'm doing? My friend, I'm just baptizing with water. You are amazed at the authority that I'm expressing? Just wait until you see what's coming. There's this one coming who is far greater than I. Rather than defending his own ministry, John acknowledges its own limitations 
by pointing to something greater. Because they ask him, what authority are you doing these things? And he's saying, I have no authority. My authority comes from somebody who is going to do something far greater than I could ever do. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 3. We actually read an expansion of what he says here. John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is saying, you are impressed by me, but I am simply paving the way for something greater. Jesus came after John. He was both younger than John in age, and his ministry began after John's. But John testifies to the fact that he is something so, so, so much greater. In a time whenever people who were older were viewed as more valuable. In a time when people with more experience were viewed as more valuable. John is talking about a man who is six months younger than him and who will have less ministry under his belt because his ministry hasn't even started. And John's is in the height of its popularity. And he's saying, this person coming after me is way better than me. So great is the one who is coming that John specifies he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. And that becomes all the more interesting whenever you read this from the Babylonian Talmud. According to Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, which is basically Rabbi Joshua, son of Levi. According to Rabbi Joshua, son of Levi, all tasks that a Canaanite slave performs for his master, a student performs for his teacher, except for untying his shoe, a demeaning act that was typically performed by slaves and would not be appropriate for a student to do. That is from Ketubot 96a in the Babylonian Talmud. So there we see that this rabbi says that students were required to do for their teachers everything that a slave would do for his master except untying his shoe because that was considered too lowly a task, something far too demeaning for even a slave to do, for even a student to do for his master. That was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. And so a student would never just do that for his teacher. Because only the lowest of slaves were allowed to untie the master's shoe. Yet John, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. John's asserting that he is not even worthy to be the lowest of slaves for the one who is coming. He says, you're impressed by me and by my authority? Well, you just wait, because the person who's coming after me, even me, with my great popularity that drew you all the way from Jerusalem, you came all the way here to see me and ask about me, but the person who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of his slaves. That is what John the Baptist is declaring here. And there are two main things that this should do for you. The first thing is that it should highlight the extremities of John the Baptist's humility. John's response here should blow your mind because you should realize that that is humility to strive for. 
This guy is drawing in thousands of people and thousands of people are listening to him preach and he is dunking them in water and they are repenting of their sins. There is a revival going on in Israel. Yet this guy says, I am nothing. I am a voice in the wilderness. I am not even worthy to be a slave, the lowest of slaves for the one who is coming. So that should highlight his humility. But the second thing that it should do is that it should highlight the extremities of Jesus Christ's glory. Because John is not exaggerating here. He is stating the truth. Whenever John says he is not even worthy to be the lowliest of slaves, he is speaking the truth because the one who is coming is not merely a man. He is not merely a king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, God made flesh, the incarnate, eternal, uncreated word that stepped onto earth to die for our sins. John isn't purely being humble. He is stating fact. He is not worthy to be the lowliest of slaves. And Jesus, as we read earlier, said that there is no one born amongst women who is greater than John the Baptist. This great, great man, speaking truly, says that he is not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus Christ. And what does that say for us whenever we lay our eyes on how glorious and beautiful and powerful Jesus Christ is? Jesus says that John is the greatest among men, yet John says that he isn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And with that, the passage concludes, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. There's a lot of debate over what is referenced here, what John means by Bethany, um, being that there is another Bethany that appears in the other Gospels and another Bethany that appears in the Gospel of John, and because we don't have a place called Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. But there are two main areas that people argue for. Uh, The first one, I believe, is the weaker argument. The second one is the stronger one, and it is most likely the correct one. Uh, And I'll present those to you just so that you know about them. The first place that people think that John is referring to is a place called Batanea. Um, You might remember this as Bashan in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, the psalmist speaks of the bulls of Bashan. And Batanea was a a region in northeastern Israel ruled by the Tetrarch Philip. Um, So it's in northeastern Israel. It's a big region, right? So basically, they would assert that John is just saying that John the Baptist was baptizing somewhere in this region. Uh, That's not as convincing of an argument. Um, But the second argument actually seems a lot stronger. Uh, And this argument is that it's a place called Bethbara, right? Um, Bethbara, and we actually get that name from a guy named Origen a few centuries after um, the New Testament. And he calls it that place because that is what it was called at his time. So it could have been called Bethany at the time of Christ. We don't know. But um, this is a place called Bethbara, and now it's called Almaktas. And this is a village on the east bank of the Jordan. And the reason why it is most likely this place is not only because of where it's located that would have made it easier for baptisms, but also because of two key traditions that were associated with it, right? So the first tradition is that this is the traditional place where Joshua and the Israelites crossed into Israel with the Ark of the Covenant. So this is where it is traditionally believed that the people of Israel crossed into Israel, where the people in the wilderness cross into the promised land. 
And so if this is the place where Jesus is going to get baptized, there's some significance there. Because Joshua, remember how we mentioned that Yeshua, the name of Jesus, Yeshua, that comes from the name Joshua? Joshua led the people into the wilderness. Jesus begins his ministry at a place where he's going to lead people into the promised land. Right? Joshua led people into the promised land. That's what I meant to say. Right? But there's also a second tradition associated with the site. And the second tradition is that this is the place where Elijah ascended into heaven. So it would make sense for John the Baptist to be doing that here. Now, we don't know for sure if that's true, if those traditions are at the right place, but traditionally, that's where those are held to be. And so it would seem to suggest that Bethabara is the place that John is referencing as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. I just want to give you those arguments so that you know and that you're informed. The main things that John is trying to get across are these. There are three things that I think John's trying to get across from this passage, and then I'll wrap us up. The first thing is that John is wanting to clarify to us that this is not the same Bethany that we read about in the other Gospels, the one that we'll read about later where Lazarus and his sisters live. John is making, he's just distinguishing the fact that this is the Bethany across the Jordan as opposed to the Bethany near Jerusalem. This is one of those eyewitness testimonies that show us, okay, John was actually probably here. Secondly, as Jesus' ministry began with John the Baptist at Bethany across the Jordan, So it will end with his ascension at Bethany near Jerusalem. So it seems like the author John is just forming this connection um, because here is where Jesus' ministry is going to begin, at Bethany across the Jordan. Uh, In the other Gospels, we read that he ascends at Bethany near Jerusalem. So it seems like there's just a connection there that his ministry both began and ended in towns called Bethany, just two different ones. Right? But the most important thing I think John is trying to get across here is that this is a real event that happened with real people at a real point in time. John would not have put this detail unless it was real. You wouldn't have just thought to be like, oh, let me put that after an afterthought. He said this because this was a real event. John the Baptist truly testified about Jesus. He truly said these things at this moment, at this time, because John was there. The Apostle John, the author, as we will see, he was likely a witness of these events. And so he says, I was there. I can remember. We were at Bethany across the Jordan. And I witnessed John the Baptist responding to these people. And this is what he said. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. The one who's coming after me is far greater than I. And that's the main point that John wants us to remember here. John is telling us that he was an eyewitness. He was there. He saw it. The implication is that the Messiah is real, that he is present, and that he is coming. And that is who we are going to meet next week. But for right now, I have one main takeaway for us to cling to. And that takeaway is this. As John the Baptist, I think we should all strive to be voices crying out in the wilderness. John was actually in a desert. We are in a spiritual wasteland. People are turning away from God left and right. And even those who don't claim to turn away from God are often not living for him. So I want to issue a challenge to each and every one of us to strive to be voices crying out in the wilderness, standing for truth, proclaiming the truth in love, and not backing down. John the Baptist is a perfect example of humility, of love, and of righteous and holy zeal. And I think we should strive 
to emulate him. We should strive to emulate Christ, but Christ admittedly is perfect, and so we'll never achieve that standard. But what Jesus says about John is he says that he is the greatest amongst those born of men, but he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than John. So we can achieve that level. We should strive to be so humble that we say, I'm nothing important. When people come up to you and they say, who are you to be telling me about sin? Who are you to be trying to point me to God? Who do you think you are? You say, I'm nobody. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's all I am. Nothing more, nothing less. He is the word. I am the voice that is trying to proclaim the word. I am the voice through whom the word is heard. We live in a desert wasteland spiritually, and we need people to hear the word of God. So let us go out into the world and strive to be like John so that everyone will know that we are voices crying out in the wilderness. And so, just as with this passage, the story of our lives will begin like his. This is the testimony of John. If somebody were to write a biography of you right now, what would the first few words read? I would love for it to say, this is the testimony of David Tate. And people come up to me and they say, are you this? No. Are you this? No. Are you this? No. Then what are you? I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the highways for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be brought low. That's what I want to be. And that's what I think we should all strive to be. And that's my main point in all of this. And I know I probably went way too long and I don't really care. I hope that you paid attention and I hope you stayed till the end because I don't want you to miss this. John the Baptist was a voice, and we can be voices too. John was not purely being humble when he said he wasn't worthy. He was speaking truthfully. I think we need to recognize that we likewise aren't worthy of the things that we have received from Christ, and we should be oh so grateful that we have received them at all, because he is worthy beyond belief. Worthy Worthy, worthy are you, O Lord, for all that you've done. May we go out into this world and be voices crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for being so worthy and for reaching out to us by grace, even though we didn't deserve it. I pray that these lessons will affect just one person for your glory. And if you give me one, Lord, then give me two. And if two, then give me three. And give me them so that I may give them to you, so that we may all live for your glory, God, that we may all be voices crying out in the wilderness, so that the wilderness will be a wilderness no more, but it will be a thriving land where people live for you and proclaim you all the day long. We love you, God, and we thank you for everything you've done. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.